I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Samael Anvior claimed that he could remember his own birth and had identified the only true path to spiritual development. Crucial to his religion was a sexual practice that involved couples never reaching orgasm. Though many who follow his belief system understand sickness to be a result of one's own karma, their master died of stomach cancer in 1977. He claimed that when he died, he would be resurrected. Welcome to Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. I'm so pleased to be back after taking a break from the podcast to write a book. It's weird, I'm still having trouble with the idea that I'm a published author. Many of the stories in the book came from the incredible people I've interviewed for Let's Talk About Sects, and I would never have had the understanding of cults that enabled me to write Do As I Say without this project. I want to thank you all for your patience and for coming back to the podcast after all this time. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of sexual abuse and has a little coarse language. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Victor Manuel Gomez Rodriguez was born in Bogota, Colombia, on the 6th of March, 1917. Under the heading My Childhood in his autobiography, under his later name of Samael Anvior, he wrote, Even though some will look at this as unusual and incredible, the concrete fact is that there are those in the world who can completely remember the totality of their existence, even the event of their own birth. I want to affirm that I am one of those who can do so. He continued, In those first years of life in which one learns how to walk, I trained myself to sit in the Oriental style in order to meditate. 
Then, retrospectively, I studied my previous reincarnations. Samael does admit that as a small child he did exhibit more expected behaviours, such as crying. Quote, How small I felt before those rough walls. I cried, yes, as children cry. I lamented by saying, Once again in a new physical body, how painful life is. Woe, woe, woe. Samael's autobiography was originally published as Christmas Message 1972-1973 in Spanish and is now available to buy as a book entitled Three Mountains, the autobiography of one of the world's most prolific spiritual authors, and with the subtitle The Secret Path to Liberation Revealed in the Labours of Hercules and Kabbalah. The Dimmick's website sells the book with a blurb that includes In this work, Samael Anvior explains the essential outline of the direct path to the realisation of the being. The direct path is the only way to reach the heights of spiritual development and was indicated with precision by Jesus of Nazareth. As with so many of the groups we've looked at in this podcast, it seems that Samael uncovered the one true way to enlightenment. While he was still going by the name Victor, not a huge amount is known about his life outside of his own writings. A short-lived marriage with a woman named Sara Duenos produced a son that they named Imperator. But by 1946, Victor was remarried to Arnolda Garo Mora, with whom he would have four children. They were named Osiris, Isis, Iris and Hypatia. You can sense a passion for ancient mythology. It was around 1948 that Victor started calling himself Anvior, which he defined as Word of God, and said that this was his inner being. He had a small following of students at this point, and in 1950 published his first book, The Perfect Matrimony of Kinder, or The Door to Enter into Initiation. The book was later renamed as The Perfect Matrimony, and claimed to reveal an esoteric sexual secret that was hiding in all of the great religions. His teachings were viewed by mainstream society as amoral and pornographic, and landed him in prison more than once. But he continued to write from his cell, and between 1950 and 1977 wrote more than 60 books on subjects including consciousness, astrology, occult medicine, tantra, flying saucers, and meditation. It was around 1954 that Victor added Samael before Envior, after a ceremony in which he claimed to have birthed his inner Christ. Gnosis, in its most basic Greek translation, means knowledge. But for Gnostics, it means knowledge of spiritual or mystical truths, verified through personal experience. Gnosticism has been around since the late 1st century AD, but Samael Anvior came to understand that he should synthesise all religions to create the new Gnosis, and then give it to humanity. Samael took bits and pieces from various religions, including Christianity, Hinduism and Buddhism, and added in late 1800s occult teachings, such as those of Rudolf Steiner and Helena Blavatsky. The FAQ of the Australian Gnostic Association includes, quote, Gnosis, the initiatic science, the science of cosmic knowledge, is the synthesis of all doctrines. That is why the variants of its name are many, existing in each language. Former Gnostic missionary Lynn Short told me that Samael plagiarised a lot of what he taught, 
But this was during a time when it wasn't so easy to fact-check over the internet. He also created Gnostic centres in Mexico, Panama, El Salvador and Costa Rica, where many followers hadn't received enough education to be able to read. Samael didn't make money from his writings, and even renounced copyright so that they could be available as far and wide as possible, though copyright was later reclaimed to keep some control over poor translations. Although he did make some pretty huge claims about himself and his mastery over the spiritual realms, Samael also wrote that he didn't seek followers. From his writings entitled Inside the Vestibule of Wisdom, quote, I, Samael, am not in need of henchmen or followers, but only imitators of my doctrine, Gnosis. I do not follow anyone, nor do I want anyone to follow me. What I want is for each one of you to follow his own self. But then, a couple of paragraphs later in the same work, there is this. Since long ago, all the spiritualist brethren of the world have been waiting for the great avatar, messenger of Aquarius. Listen, do not wait for another messenger, because I am the initiator of the new era. The tree is known by its fruits. I am a tree, my fruits are my books. Thus, study them, practice them, and do not forget that the master appears when the disciple is prepared. It's a bit of a conflicting message, really. Samael taught that everything a student would ever need to know could be found in his books, and that it was unnecessary to read anything else. In late 1977, Samael was diagnosed with stomach cancer, and he passed away on the 24th of December that year. Following his death, Samael had taught that he would be resurrected, but Gnostics of today generally understand this to have been a rebirth on another plane of existence. With the Master no longer around, Samael's devotees split off into a few different sects. Lynn Short became involved with one of these, and she told me a bit about the splinter groups. The main, probably the main two to three groups would be the group we were in, the New Gnostic Society, uh, the one in Australia, which I'm not sure what they call themselves. They're an offshoot of ours, the one that we were with. And then there's the Glorian group. They're, they're kind of the biggest presence because they're the ones that wrote the book. Uh, didn't write the books, but they translated the books and got them mass printed. While a lot of Samael's texts are available via the Glorian website, there are some still unavailable there. I found an interesting example. In 1964, Samael wrote the platform of the Latin American Christian Socialist Party. Chapter 9 of The Social Christ, which explores the fundamental ideas of the platform, is entitled The Big Corporations. From an English translation, it starts with, quote, From the profound night of the centuries, there exists the fraternity of crime, the tenebrious brotherhood. One who has studied the protocols of the elders of Zion will understand the plans and projects of the tenebrious brotherhood. It continues, who composes these corporations? The personalities of the shadow, the followers of the black magistracy, the secret enemy. In case you're not aware, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a fully discredited anti-Semitic text that falsely claims to portray a Jewish plan for world domination. It is a totally falsified writing that has caused huge amounts of harm and that continues to be pushed by neo-fascists as real to aid their conspiracy-addled agendas. I was disturbed but not altogether surprised to find it mentioned in Samael's writings. 
The Australian offshoot group Lynn mentioned is called the Australian Gnostic Association, and at the time of researching this episode, it lists 27 AGA centres across Australia, with New South Wales and Western Australia hosting the most at nine each. It also mentions groups in Christchurch and Auckland, New Zealand. The New Zealand site explains on its About page, In the same way that there are laws of nature and mathematics, Gnosis seeks to understand the universal and impersonal principles of esotericism and spiritual development, the underlying thread of knowledge that links all religions, mythologies and spiritual philosophies. The international website for the New Gnostic Society lists contact information for representative organisations in 15 countries across Oceania, Europe and the Americas, as well as a correspondence course for those who can't access a local centre. Lynn Short originally came across the new Gnostic Society around October 2001, when she was living in Portland, Oregon. Lynn was kind enough to share her experiences with me for this episode. I had just moved to Portland and I was a little bit in a vulnerable place because I had just finished massage school and I was looking for work and I was in a new place and I had come to be with my friend who I was in love with and trying to deny that to myself. And he and his girlfriend were very interested in new age things. And so I found a flyer that listed these kind of esoteric-y, interesting new agey things that I thought, oh, he would be interested in this and I'll bring this to him and his girlfriend. And he was very interested and she was not. And I didn't have anything going on. And I was uh, like, well, I'll, I'll just go to this thing with you. And this should be interesting. We're friends. It's cool. And so we showed up. And on the one hand, most of what made me stay <laughs> was Justin because I was in love with him. But the other half of that, uh, not to make it too codependent, was the magic that it kind of had in the beginning for me how it, how Gnosis, how Samael, how the instructor that we had at the time sort of gave all of the answers, like all of the questions that I had about what being a human being was, what my own purpose in life was, why we couldn't all just get along uh, as races, as individuals, as genders, why there was evil in the world. And while I was raised in a secular home, I had these interests, uh, call them spiritual leanings, if you will. And so this was a nice package and it provided all of those answers. And it was very scholarly because we studied Kabbalah and we studied ancient aspects of Christianity and we studied uh, in depth, like weird alchemical symbols and what the meaning behind the meaning of things was. And it was very fun and interesting. And it gave me certainty about my placement in the world, which wasn't very high, mind you. Uh, but it also gave me a way out. And the way out was through the practices that Samael said would awaken your consciousness. I asked Lynn what she meant when she said it gave her a way out. A way out of what? Well, my placement in the world, uh, which was 
damned. Uh, and it's, it's weird what hooks a person psychologically because uh, I couldn't tell you why before if I had heard that from someone that would have, that just would have rolled off my back and why this time period or that instructor or the circumstance with uh, wanting to be with Justin or the accumulation of those things. Um, that was the hook, you know, like I had missed college. I mean, I had gone through college and, and graduated. I missed it. I missed that interaction. And here was this relatively free interaction that gave me like really nerdy look on life, nerdy in the meaning of like, what's the purpose of life and these kind of magical things. So that was the hook for me. Lynn's degree was in psychology, but she didn't get a job in the field and she was trying to figure out what was next for her. It was enlightening to feel like you had an answer. Like it was like, oh, there's an answer and I'm one of the rare people that stumbled upon it. And they kind of uh, alluded to that if you find these teachings, you know, if you stumble upon these teachings, then you are being called forward toward the teaching. Today, Lynn would consider that to be a red flag, and I'm sure a lot of listeners would too. If a group is portraying itself as privy to some kind of exclusive and rare knowledge, and that you're incredibly fortunate to have found access to it. Lynn wanted to be very clear that in her case, her instructor wasn't the kind of manipulative leader that listeners of this podcast might have come to expect. My instructor did not have ill intent. He was not trying to be a giant mogul cult leader. That's kind of the weird thing when, when, when I read about, because I, I do it a lot now for my own healing, going through different books about cults and stuff. Ours is a weird cult because uh, it's kind of a crapshoot as to what, as a student, as a member, it, it just, just depended upon the health of the missionary. Like, because uh, it, it's very insular group, like the missionaries are doing their teachings inside their homes or maybe at the public library, but the inner workings happen at the missionary's home. So it's very intimate in a non-sexual way. It's it's very close with all these people that are in the house with you, either at this, the student or the missionary, and things can become rife with abuse and neglect, and and not even with bad intentions. Lynn told me about the chambers that you were to advance along as you travelled the path of Gnosis. So you have the first chamber, and that's the basic teachings, and it's all of these lectures, and it's covering Hinduism and Buddhism and the teachings of uh, ancient Christianity and, and you know, alchemical symbolism and the tarot and all these, you know, you name it, crystals, like, it can be just all of it. It's all of the different things that people might have an inkling of interest in, and then your job as a missionary is to link it all into Gnosis, because that's what Samael did. Samael linked all of these esoteric and and world religions into the one teaching. And so you're just bringing everything back to Gnosis, bringing everything back to this teaching of awakening the consciousness. 
And so that's first chamber. And then the second chamber, there's, well, there's meditation chamber, which is still technically first chamber, where you're practicing all of the practices. And you're slowly hinting that there's a sexual teaching. By the end of the meditation chamber, it's explicit that the idea is that you are holding on to your energy, that you are not having orgasms with sex. But there's all of this stuff that's piled on before then that you're slowly being acclimated to so that when you hear that it's a sexual teaching, that you're probably more willing to do it. And then there's second chamber. So if you're a good meditation chamber student and you are on board with the sexual teaching and you are no longer drinking heavily, uh, you can have wine with dinner or something. There's no teetotaling. And you're not doing drugs. You will be welcomed into second chamber, which is where we have the temple in the house. And you get a vestment and these shoes. And the women who are uh, Isis, they are the, the women who take care of the temple. Because only women can clean the temple. Only women can touch the certain ornaments except for the priest um there's a really hard line about that and if you're if if i was having uh my period i couldn't touch any of the things because i'm unclean so my my other isis friends would take over not every woman in the temple is an isis that's only reserved for the women who are available to do that who the who the missionary woman feels should do it then there's third chamber which is another level of the temple work which is there's a a christian book about pista sophia um which is about the sephira which is all very kabbalistic and so you're working through the the tree of life in the different sephira which are different levels of your being this is all very complicated context but like this is this is the teaching this is what they are teaching you and so in order to awaken your consciousness, you're A, doing the sexual teaching, and B, you are working through the different levels of the being. You have 49 levels of the mind, and you have 24 levels of the being. And don't ask me what all of that means anymore, please. <laughs> Practices that are part of the new Gnosticism include mindfulness and meditation, as Lynn mentioned. And a key one is lucid dreaming. The flyer that originally got Lynn involved with her then-friend, now-husband, Justin, mentioned this practice. I asked Lynn what it was all about. Lucid dreaming is the being able to be aware that you are dreaming while you are there and to, if not consciously direct the dream, uh, then to ask questions either of the things that the people or the animals that are around you or to verify the teaching. It depends on your skill level with this because there are many levels to this and I only got to a small part of it. Um, And that's its own complex story. So with lucid dreaming, ideally a student would do the mindfulness practices and the meditation because the more that you are quieting the mind, the more you have access to lucid dreaming. And for example, people on meditation retreats, just basic Buddhist meditation retreats or yoga retreats will have access to lucid dreaming much more because they're being quiet. They're not interacting. They're not on their phones. They're not, you know, these kinds of stimuli aren't affecting your day-to-day impression that you're having of life. 
Um, and so the more that you quiet that down, the more that you still that down, the more, the more basic control that you have over how you direct your mind. So Samael uh, suggested in his practices that you call upon the Buddha or call upon him, meaning Samael, or call upon Jesus Christ and verify the teachings through them. So you could conjure the atmosphere, which would be this particular prayer, and you would hold your hands in a particular position and say this prayer and conjure the space. And by conjuring the space, it will change. The atmosphere will change and you will gain more lucidity. And then you can attempt through your being. You yourself aren't supposed to do it. You're supposed to beg and plead your inner God to call down Jesus or Moses or whomever, whatever it is that you're curious about. And you can get your questions answered. Um, however, most of the time, because this is psychology, your answers are usually given to you in symbols. There's not usually direct, like, oh, my child, you need to do X, Y, Z. Um, it's usually just symbology, which you then need to interpret, which, of course, can be interpreted incorrectly. Um, or interpreted to your own bias toward the teaching or away from the teaching or whatever. So the complication arises in that we were asked, this was uh, not required, but strongly suggested. Uh, everything is strongly suggested in Gnosis because they're trying to stay away from things that are, are too aggressive. And it was strongly suggested that you stay as quiet as possible throughout the day. And meanwhile, you're not in a monastery, you're in the normal world. So that's a complication. So you have to kind of, you're slow, you're not even being asked to do it, but you're slowly keeping yourself from certain relationships because they're st stimulating. So you cloister yourself to a certain degree. And then by doing so, you can have access to the teachings and to have the, the good experiences all these lucid dreams were called experiences. To have the good experiences, quote unquote, you would then only read spiritual things or spiritual poetry or listen to objective music, which uh, I'm using bunny air quotes in that, um, any music that was spiritual and or uh, classical music because those were considered objective I asked Lynn whether lucid dreaming was about being in a partially asleep, partially awake state, or whether it was happening in deep sleep, and she told me you would be fully asleep when it happened. It is one of the most, like, man, if you want to have a weird trip, um, go into lucid dreaming, because you can, by following the practices, you can change the atmosphere in the dream if you are aware enough to test your reality, which was another way you had to like look at a clock and then look away and then look again. And is the clock the same time or try to put your hand through a wall or try to pull your finger and all of these tests in the dream world, because you are technically in the Gnostic terms, you are in another dimension physically, everything is different. And so everything is more subtle and so you can stick your hand through the wall or you can pull your finger and that stretches. Um, 
And I verified that part. You could get stuck in the wall or you could pull your finger and be like, I'm dreaming. And then as you are aware that you are dreaming, it magically allows you to have more energy would be a way to put it. You gain more awareness. Uh, your, your, your energy is up in, the, in that world. And weirdly, the people that are around you aren't actually people. They're just figments in your mind. And they become aware that you've become aware and are not really that pleased about it. Now, it depends on who you are and your psychological makeup. Like I had, at the time, a lot of insecurity and I had a lot of doubts and a lot of fear about this teaching because it is an Armageddon teaching and you are a sinner and you are damned to hell, whether you come across the teachings or not. Uh, but you're especially damned if you start the teachings and then leave. And so there was just a lot of fear about that for me. And so that just was a reflection in my lucid dreaming. And I didn't understand that then, and then now I do. So regardless of whatever you do during the day, whether you watch horror movies or whether you watch documentaries on Jesus, is going to reflect into the, the mirror of your consciousness when you're asleep. And it doesn't really matter because it's just you it's just subjective because it's you however the gnostics don't interpret it that way they see it as truth because you are in this other dimension and i don't believe this anymore i'm just trying to give you context <laughs> um and so the things that you could hear from jesus or samael or whomever would be truth with a capital t and some of the teachings that i got when i was lucid dreaming were frightening because I was afraid of all of this. And that was the teaching I got. This sounds to me like it could be quite dangerous to some people, depending on their state of mind. And Lynn said that there was a real victim-blaming mentality to it as well. So if your dreams were full of fear, then that was your fault. You were told that you shouldn't have been afraid. In the belief system, there is a difference between objective art and subjective art, and students are only meant to partake in objective art. Lynn, explain the concept to me. Subjective art is art that the basic person does, which can be full of lust or anger or envy or fill in the bank of the seven deadly sins. Um, and an objective artist would either A, be completely conscious or B, mostly conscious. And so there's objectivity. They know the, the hidden dimensions. They know the teachings. They know the, and who knows how they know this? Um, no one's, you know, no one asked Beethoven, <laughs> hey, do you know about your divine mother? Certain works of spiritual and classical music were considered objective by Samael, who said that he had verified this because he could leave his body at will and go and check if someone was awake. Lynn never met Samael himself, as he had died long before she came across Gnosis. But I asked whether through her time in the new Gnostic society, she had formed an impression of what he might have been like, whether he was controlling or gaining something monetarily from his followers or anything like that. The impression that I got get, uh, especially from people who actually met him, there's still a few of those people around, 
um, very stern man, very strict, was not trying necessarily to make money off of people. People supported him anyway, uh, because he's the master and you support the master so that he can sit at his desk and write his teachings rather than worry about working and mundane things. So as far as taking advantage of people monetarily, I, I don't have that huge impression of that. And the same with most of the other missionaries, like no one's trying to make money at Gnosis. So I think it has to do with power and control. And because the teaching, the teaching says, this is the way, this is the truth. And with a capital T and, and you can verify it by the practices and, and the lucid dreaming part. Like, you get to validate or ver verify that Samael said a thing. And I just see it a lot differently now. So I think people are not intentionally damaging other people. I think that they are authentically, and I think Samael authentically thought he was doing something for the human good. I also think he was deluded, though, because maybe a lot of those experiences and the teachings were for him in particular, not everyone to make a religion out of something that you're just dreaming about is weird. From the reading I'd done of his works, it seemed that Samael certainly embraced the idea of being the master and the source of the truth with a capital T. In explaining her understanding of this to me, Lynn hit upon something that my researcher and I found when we were trying to understand the new gnosis. It's all incredibly confusing when you attempt to get your head around it. He writes about it in, in, in his books and almost every book about how they made him a master. And he, he was slightly reluctant because he, you know, didn't want the burden on his shoulders. But he, you know, bravely went forth and decided to be the avatar of Aquarius, which means he's the god of Mars. It's a lot of context. <laughs> There's a lot of jargon. There's so much jargon in Gnosis. It's hard to talk about any of it without explaining all of it. Reading Samael's teachings and the interpretations of them by the various Gnostic offshoot groups, it made me think of so many other readings from so many other groups. While they may have completely different ideas, there was that familiar sense of bewilderment, like I could never quite understand exactly what they were saying. I think that's part of its hook or its charm. It's so complex, like how do you critically think your way through it? You know, it's like a wet bag and... Uh, it's its charm, but also it's that's what stops you from critically thinking in the first place is because, well, you just said eight things that don't actually match. How do I make this work? And it just prevents you from critical thinking and it prevents you from thinking at all. This can, of course, help to keep followers in a perpetual state of feeling like they have so much to learn, like those further along the path are so much more enlightened than they are because they don't seem to be confused by all of this incredibly confusing stuff. In the teaching, the people who start to have more influence among the missionaries and members, they have kind of figured it out, whatever it is. And I don't even know if they know that they've figured it out, but they are able to talk in length about just random esoteric stuff. They have caught some, they have been able to figure out a way to garble through it and make it sound like they're saying something when they're not. With Samael not around anymore by the time Lynn got involved with Gnosis, it really felt like he'd managed to set up a system that kept people incredibly in line via the teachings themselves. 
I asked Lynn what it was about how he had constructed the belief system that allowed for him to have so much sway over her and the lives of so many followers. I don't think there's any one thing. And I think it has to do with, if you were to read the books, I don't know if you looked up a book, um, the books themselves are very certain. There's no mumbling about it. Uh, He is certain that he is awake and that he is right. And I think that has a comfort for people who have uncertainty in their life or people who have had trauma, because this gives an answer to that. The, the trauma you experienced was your karma. You know, that's an answer. Like, it's not a good answer, but it's an answer rather than, well, I don't know, like people suck. Like, that's not a satisfying answer. Knowing that your own trauma was your fault to a certain extent puts it back in your control. And I think that might be part of it, but that's a guess. Like so many other cults you've heard about on this podcast, Samael presented his new gnosis as the one true way. There is a great deal of, this is the path, this is the way. There is no other religion that teaches the complete path of awakening the consciousness. And awakening the consciousness is the only way you gain heaven. And the only way you gain heaven is by awakening your consciousness and doing these practices that are very obscure and stuff that Samael sort of created out of a hodgepodge of old occult, um, mid-1800s, early 1900s, esoteric occultists like Blavatsky or Steiner and so on. At the New Gnostic Society, when Lynn became involved, there was a bullet point list of things that students were told that they should have achieved within certain time frames, such as knowing the name of your being and what planet you came from. It's like, if you haven't done this, if you haven't achieved any of these within five years of becoming a Gnostic, then what are you doing? Which is a very threatening kind of way to approach that, you know, because people have different skills. There were people who I knew who had tried lucid dreaming and had never been able to do it. And there were people who certainly did it better than me. So there were people who could meditate at the drop of a hat and just have a wonderfully silent mind. And there were other people like me that struggled with it. So it just, you know, to have such a black and white teaching be so important because Armageddon is coming and it's the path. And if you're not on the path, then you're doomed. Like all of that, I think just that would keep you to stay. Even if like for me, like I wasn't drawn to Samael, he scared me, but what he was saying scared me more. So uh, I stayed for a long time. Lynn joined the New Gnostic Society in 2001 and left in 2018 after 17 years. The sexual practice in New Gnosticism is incredibly important to the belief system and to progressing along the path. It's quite a particular one, and Lynn told me about it. It's good to have a relationship with a partner, and it must be a biologically gendered different partner, gay or trans or any non-binary existence is not accepted in Gnosis. Um, You might be able to, as a 
gay person be on the first chamber level, but you would never have access to the other stuff. I asked Lynn whether this had struck her as a problem at the time, and she told me this was an embarrassing thing for her to talk about. But when I said we could move on, she was really open about why she wanted to talk about it. No, no, I'm happy to because I think it I think it exemplifies what you do to yourself to make it work in your brain. And I decided gay people were bad after being introduced. And I and I say that with bunny quotes because it's like it's not like I was like, gay people suck now, um, because I was very liberal in college. So it made me leery would be a, a pleasant way of putting it. Uh, like I would interact with gay people less or anyone that was different less. And I would conjure the atmosphere if a client, because I was a massage therapist, still am. Um, I would conjure the atmosphere before and after they came in to make sure that, yeah, it just weird practices that I would do to sort of keep separate from people as people. I asked Lynn what she meant by conjure the atmosphere. It, conjuring was like a basic prayer that would cleanse the atmosphere. It's like a burning sage, but with words. The, the idea is that by conjuring and the more faith that you had, it would have more power. And the more sexual energy you had, it would have more power and it would protect you better. So God, if I have to touch a gay person, then I'm at least going to be protected. And Which is an awful thing to say in, in retrospect. I These are some of my regrets. These are some of the things that I am... I, I resent about what I had to do in my brain and how I followed along. It's crazy what you'll do. So once you had a sexual partner of the opposite biological gender in Gnosis, you could unlock the next level of your awakening. In order to awaken your consciousness fully, you have to be with a sexual partner. You can, as a single practitioner, and there are plenty of single people in Gnosis, you can awaken your consciousness by doing all the practices and being a good little practitioner Um, you can awaken your consciousness to 50%. But you have the opportunity as a person with a partner to practice using the sexual teaching, using the sexual energy to destroy your ego and awaken consciously fully in one lifetime. You'd want your partner to be Gnostic though. There were people who attempted with like either a partner was like, eh, I don't care for this or was never interested in it. Uh, I know there were couples that tried to have a relationship with one person not interested and the other person interested. I would say 90% of those failed because how can you, it's such, um, let's talk about control. It's the most intimate thing that we, the most intimate moments that we have. And if you are needing to do sex in a particular way, and I'm not talking about a kink, I'm talking about these practices and your other partner can't or won't or doesn't want to participate in that way, then that's really going to break apart the relationship. Lynn had joined the New Gnostic Society with her longtime friend Justin. They'd met when they were young adults and stayed in touch through years of living in different cities and travelling the world, back when they'd send each other postcards to their parents' addresses before email existed. Finally, in Portland, they were living in the same city but Justin had a girlfriend. When he became enthusiastic about dedicating himself to the Gnostic path, Lynn was up for it too. Justin's girlfriend wasn't, and his relationship eventually broke up. 
finally we were both free and in the same place. And this is something that he wanted. And I was willing to make that compromise because I did love him as much as I did. And I, it's not like he was the only man I'd ever met. I have, I, at that point I had met lots of guys and they were great and some weren't, but I could never leave him alone. And so he asked if I would be his, his perfect wife, which, you know, you're, the perfect matrimony is uh, the alchemical relationship that Samael calls it. So would I do this? And at the time, it was so early in the teachings. It would have been seven months. Yeah. And so this, this came on super early. So then it made it all the more exciting. So now I had this committed relationship and we had a goal together. Like we were going to awaken our consciousnesses together. And, you know, that gave us something to do, some, so a focal point other than, I think what most relationships focus on. So it grounded us. That was one of the things that probably kept us together in the beginning was that it gave us a common point of focus. And uh, sometimes it was contentious. Most of the time it was great as far as our goal together. Now that Lynn and Justin had their perfect matrimony, they could take part in the Gnostic sexual practice. The basic premise is that you have sex without having an orgasm, both partners. This can last uh, three minutes to an hour and a half. It depends on what the participants can do. It depends on what they are, you know, intuiting they need to do. And here's another skill level. So if you are good at orgasmic control, like that's basically edging, right? If you're good at that, if you're well-skilled at that, then great, you're going to do fine. And if you have problems arise like I did, um, then it's a problem. The first couple of years of me and Justin being together, we maybe had sex seven times a year. Like it was really infrequent. I won't speak to why that was happening other than like there was a lot of pressure. (laughs) There's so much pressure on us. So there wasn't really an opportunity for me to understand that my body worked a little differently. And so when we did finally start practicing on a much more regular basis, I was discovering that I had difficulty not having an orgasm. And, you know, yay, but also it was rather unpleasant because it was painful because I'm trying to prevent it from happening. So there's all this contraction and then the shame and the pain of what I'm doing I'm destroying all the work that I had done in the day of, because every day, every day is about what have you controlled? Have you controlled your thoughts? Have you controlled your emotions? Have you controlled your lust? And once you're in the bedroom, you take all of that information and you dissolve it through the sexual practice. And there were times where I could control it and I couldn't tell you why. I couldn't tell you what was different. It's just lucky that time around. And sometimes we don't have a half an hour, an hour long session. And while you're doing the session, you're not having sex. You are praying. You are matrializing. You are trying to stay in a meditative state with moving as little as possible. So it's not sexy sex. It's not satisfying sex. It's just another thing you've got to do. I asked Lynn about the theory behind this practice, being around retaining that energy inside yourself. 
Yes. So that is the sexual energy is basically the consciousness. And by not spilling, not having an orgasm, you are collecting that energy in your spine. And as you awaken your consciousness, the energy will travel up your spine until it gets to your head, which is a little bit Hindu-y. And uh, once it reaches your mind, you have awakened your consciousness fully. And I can't say I ever experienced anything that happened in my spine. You know, it's just other people say that they are, and I have to just nod my head and agree with them. I wondered what this practice meant for procreation. Well, there were certain people who had children, and that was really not addressed. That's It was super just glossed right over, like the fact that someone had children. They would try to, I heard statements about how it's not meant to be perfect, it's a practice. But it sure that's not how it's written. That's not at all how it's written in the teaching. You know, if you spill one drop, then you'll die. You know, it's better that you tie a millstone to your neck and drown. As we know, Samael himself had five children. There's an entry on the Cult Information and Family Support website from a former member of the Circle for Investigation of Gnostic Anthropology and Gnosis in Australia that includes why this person thinks that the group is problematic. It says that members are not encouraged to have children so that they can dedicate more of their time to the group, that there is no room for constructive criticism and debate, that gut feelings and personal views are suppressed, that ex-members are considered failures and contact with them is frowned upon, that seeds of fear are sown amongst followers to believe that something bad may happen to them if they leave, and that any doubts or scepticism are put down to one's own ego or black magic. Quote, The group is never at fault. The problem always lies with the individual. As Lynn mentioned earlier, the Gnostic practice is intimate, not only in its specific teachings, but in its church setup as well. The temples themselves were set up in people's houses. Which is the second chamber to third chamber part where you have the actual church in your house. And that I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, there was a room in your house dedicated to a church atmosphere. You had an altar and you had these very, very particular objects in the, in the temple. And those parameters had to be met. Like, they could be met in any way you want them to be, you know, like the swords had to be, you know, a certain length. They don't have to be big. They don't have to be glamorous, but you have to have swords and you have to have vestments and you have to have, you know, fill in the blank. To continue to advance along the Gnostic path, you can become a missionary. And the way to become a missionary in the new Gnostic society, which differs in other offshoots, is that you express a desire to become one, and you write 33 lectures. You give these lectures to your missionary, and they will tell you whether you're ready or not to attend the missionary course. And you go to the missionary course, which is a three-month-long course, and then, ta-da, you are a missionary. And if you are catching any tone in my voice, it's because I. this is another one of those points that I am really resentful of, is that... Um, it didn't feel like it was a choice to become a missionary. It felt like 
there wasn't an option. Justin was very curious about becoming one and I was not, and there wasn't a possibility for me not to become a missionary if Justin became a missionary. That's not a thing that happens. Uh, the woman doesn't have to go through the course, but she has to participate as a missionary regardless once once the man becomes a missionary. That's not, it's not an option. And in fact, it's like, well, why wouldn't you want to help your husband? You know, so there's that. And you're not taught for very long. It's three, three months is not, it's not enough to help people spiritually or psychologically. That's, it's just abysmal. I asked Lynn what the missionaries to be were taught on the three month missionary course. It depends on who's teaching it. And the person who taught us, uh, he basically had us run through all of our lectures yet again. And then he would tell his stories about how hard it was to be a missionary, not a very encouraging man. And then he would like tell us all the sacrifices he and his wife did like over and over again, just talk about like how they were homeless at one point, And I can't remember all of it anymore, but like, just, you need to be able to sacrifice as much as we were basically be willing to suffer for the teaching because the teaching is the path and you yourself are unimportant, your personal interests, unimportant. You have to sacrifice your entire life to the teaching and you need to do it willingly and lovingly. Lynn and Justin lived in a share house and kept their expenses low so that they could save up and afford to spend three months on this course. Then, once they returned as missionaries, their community was supportive of them and paid to attend their lectures and help keep their school going. But in a city like Portland, that was definitely not enough money to live on. We still had to both work full-time jobs and then teach on top of that. So that's writing the lectures, doing your own practices, setting up practices that you do then with the students, and then teaching three or four nights a week, and then also having the rituals in the temple. So you're a very busy person. It, it was exhausting. I did not realize until we moved to, we gave the school of Portland to this awful human being <laughs> and moved to uh, Spokane to start another branch. And it just never quite gelled in Spokane. And I'm grateful for that because that started the process of being able to have time to even put two thoughts together to, to think like, maybe this isn't what I want to be doing with my life because I'm exhausted and I'm not enjoying my life at all but I'm supposed to be happy making the sacrifice. Lynn told me that for new Gnostics, there's never a time when they're not working on themselves. So there's never an end point or position of completion. She said that even the few Gnostics that claim to be fully conscious never get to relax because the Black Lodge could make them stumble and fall. From a glossary on the Glorian website, the Black Lodge is defined as a term that describes the multitude of creatures who seek power, glory, fear, envy, lust, vengeance, domination, etc., and use whatever means necessary to get what they want. In other words, they are ruled by desire and use desire to manipulate others. It is called Black because it is corrupted by the ego, desire, attachment, etc., Throughout the creation of this podcast and the many stories of people I've spoken to for Let's Talk About Sects and my book, Do As I Say, my understanding of cults and how they operate has definitely evolved. 
It was really interesting talking to Lynn about her experiences with the new Gnostic society, because that original charismatic leader, Samael Anvior, was no longer around. This is the case, of course, with many of the groups we've looked at. Though often a highly controlling successor has stepped up into the role, or a leadership structure is set up to continue the dynamic. I would usually tend to think that it's not the belief system that matters so much as the controlling nature of the structure. But with the new Gnostics, Lynn gave me the impression that the belief system itself is what causes people to undermine their own sense of individuality, to devote themselves entirely to the path, and to be in a state of constant sacrifice and pain. If you're feeling pain, you're doing it right. So in the belief system, suffering is a virtue. And Lynn explained on an interview with the Trust Me podcast that you could hate yourself, but not too much because then you're focusing on yourself too much. That balancing act is referred to as walking the razor's edge. You're meant to sacrifice interests, personal desires and self-compassion to become nothing. Lynn also told me a little bit about some of the attitudes towards healthcare that she came across in Gnosis and how some of them could be potentially dangerous. That's become a little bit more interesting with a pandemic because there are many in Gnosis who are anti-vaccine and there are many in Gnosis who, if you are sick, it's your karma. You know, you made yourself vulnerable, so there's a lot of victim blaming. Not all the missionaries toe the same line in that. So it just kind of depends on what your missionary is and how influential they are. The person who did our missionary training, I heard, because I dip my, because I'm, I am what I am. And I dip my toe into the radio. There's a karate radio, which is the Gnostic radio. You get to listen to lectures or listen to conversations with other missionaries. And I would call these people the influencers uh, because they just have more influence you can listen to their lectures and their conversations about Gnosis or the, the times that we find ourselves in. And the missionary who did our missionary training was telling the listeners that uh, the vaccines have the Antichrist bodies in them. And he said, if you were to inject yourself with it, you were injecting yourself with the Antichrist. And thus, you probably shouldn't take it. But take it if you feel like you need to, but it's got the Antichrist in it, which doesn't seem like much of a choice for me. I asked Lynn if there was anything else that she considered dangerous about the organisation and the way it operated. I found her to be incredibly considered in her response. Lynn in no way wants to suggest that all of the new Gnostic teachings are bad or that it's terrible for everyone involved in it, but she does think it has the potential to cause a fair few problems for a fair few people. If, if you are of an aptitude or an appetite that can handle this kind of teaching, because it's very in your face, it's not a whole lot different than a lot of the teachings of Buddhism about the ego and how the ego interferes with your consciousness and how if you just diminish your ego's influence upon you, then you will be a freer person and you will be happier. And that is still truth with a tiny T, I won't say a capital T, but it's, there's truth to that. And so while that's an aspect of our teaching and while that's a good part of the teaching, and that is something that I am glad that I have learned, it comes with this other weight of this expectation of perfection, this uh, pressure to have sex in a particular way and be happy for it. 
and to work in a way that is that suffering becomes its own virtue that if you're suffering you are doing it correctly and if you're sacrificing your time and energy for the school and the teaching and the missionary and yourself as far as your own personal growth so it becomes this very focal point of disconnection from the world and i think that's unhealthy uh, now that i am no longer in gnosis i am happier than i have been in almost two decades and none of it is frivolous it i i agree every day with with much yeah it's not like every day is perfect and i don't have to deal with shit but i do um but like i'm free of that weight which is priceless and of that performance anxiety and that need to follow these teachings every day it's not like you get to go to church and like listen to a lecture and be like oh cool i love god and you go home and live a life no every minute of your day is surrounded with these teachings and the expectation is that you are going to live them and if you can do that then this is a okay teaching for you i'm not going to condemn the whole thing but i don't know many people who can be in the world and what i mean by that is they're not at a monastery where they're cloistered and can focus on this and that's the point is that they're focusing together and supporting each other i don't see how this is manageable cuz life is difficult and challenging and calls to you and needs your attention and you're supposed to ignore all of it for the most part um you're not supposed to invest in your retirement you're not supposed to worry about buying a house or having children and so if that's some things that you want which isn't bad that's not egoic to want things then i i see that as what is dangerous about the teaching lynn also told me about some abuse that happened within the new gnostic society that she became aware of most notably under the Australian missionary that she and Justin passed their Portland school on to. The stories were disturbing and impacted a number of women. So there's, there's absolutely the possibility of abuse, depending on who your missionary is. And there's no vetting. No one's making sure these people are safe. There's no accountability. There's no credentialing that's happened. It's just you go to the teaching and, yay, you're a missionary now. Um, so this is the problem of the organization. The missionary in this case had been telling one of his students that her karma was so dense that she really needed help to clean it up. And what would help clean it up was partaking in the sexual practice with him. He also had a wife at the time. This student told Lynn what was going on and also told another Gnostic who was a mental health practitioner. The two of them took it to the leadership for a decision on what should be done. Lynn assumed that the missionary would be kicked out of the organisation. When the decision came back, it wasn't what she was expecting. The man was told to stop teaching for a while, and his students could consider what they wanted the next move to be. It was up to the members, it was up to the students to decide if they should be continued being taught by him, which is awful. It's, it's absolutely awful. There's so much wrong. I cannot articulate why I feel there's so much wrong with that but in my like basic psychology brain it's like you are telling your abuser you are being told it's your responsibility to choose whether to continue with your abuser who has such a power differential from you with a spiritual teaching 
which is critical because it's the path and he's awake and he's been telling you he's awake and you're going to send him away. The response to the abusive situation in Portland, as well as another one in Seattle, and finally getting a bit of breathing space with the school in Spokane not being as demanding, were a few things that led to Lynn's decision to disengage with the new Gnostic society. But Lynn's own headspace was becoming intolerable as well. The amount of unhappiness I personally was having was just becoming just something I was going to have to address. Like it was, it was insurmountable at that point. So Lynn finally came to the conclusion that she would need to leave, which was not an easy thing to do with a husband who she adored still fully invested in the teachings. The time came for me to to pull the plug and it meant it meant I needed to have a conversation with Justin and I was terrified of that because I had seen what had happened to other couples and I did not make it an ultimatum. It was just like I spoke to him as a friend and it was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't be in this much pain and suffering. It's not, it's not worth the price and I can't do it. And if you want to be in it, good, please decide to stay. But I would need to leave, not just the teaching, but like the house. I couldn't say leave him. (laughs) I just couldn't bring myself to that. Um, But that's, that's what it would mean. And we were kind of deliberating about what that would mean. I stepped away from, we had started a prison program. I had stepped away. I stepped away from that completely. I stopped teaching at the prison and I stopped teaching, having anything to do with any of the books or meditating. And then I had, I'd done some research and found a, a little book that was like, how to leave your cult. And I posted it on Facebook and the amount of problems that that stirred up was extreme. And a week later, Justin was kicked out. Lynn and Justin were considered on the outs after that, though Justin had never said a word against the Gnostics himself. We knew that we were fired because we received an email addressed to all of the missionaries. And it was a bit of a scree about, you know, protecting Gnosis and Gnosis is in danger and we need to keep it safe or something like that. And I don't remember all of it anymore. Um, and that there were certain individuals that Gnostic missionaries needed to no longer be in contact with. On that short list, which included two dead men and finally the abuser who had taken over the Portland school, Lynn and Justin's names were the only ones in bold. Of course, Leaving a high-demand organisation does not mean instant freedom and a world of laughs. Lynn told me about the immediate impact of disengaging and how difficult this was for her. One of the things I'm very, I'm very happy about is that I feel like I've gone through the worst part of having left. The first year, uh, maybe year and a half, was a freefall of what have I got under my feet? You know, I was on the path and maybe I wasn't saved, but I was safe-ish. And then I, I lost it all and I said no to it and I'm damned. And 
that's a hard phase and you can get through it. It it takes a lot of support and I had a lot of support. I leaned on my family. Um, I leaned on Justin. And even though like my process has been like, by the time I left, I had so much resentment about the way the thing was organized. And I had so much regret for the waste of time of my life. 17 years is not a small phase of life. And how tired I was, like, you know, I'm 51 now. And like the idea of going back to school to learn something else is like, oh God, no. Like, I don't want to learn. I learned. There's so much I learned. (laughs) We were so scholastic. I don't want to do any more other than learn like about cults. Like I'm so on fire for that. Um, but, uh, therapy helped, um, finding a good therapist who got me through one particularly bad phase and then, um, realizing I sort of graduated and then kind of realizing I was still very triggered by, uh, I was hearing stuff from the grapevine and how much rage and anger I could, I could fall into and needing to learn some practices. And so I found another therapist who specifically uh, new religious trauma. And so I worked with her for a while. Um, And then just time and research. Like I've listened to podcasts and watched YouTube and I try to really find people that can explain something rather than rant. That I found most helpful because while I, I can get on a good course and rant as much as the next person, that's not very helpful and it doesn't help break down the systematic thought that you've been under or beliefs that you've been under and listening to people articulate, you know, whether it was YouTube or my therapist or, or other atheists who, you know, were mild mannered, um, like finding a way through that path was really critical. Um, and now I'm in a good place where I feel like I don't, I'm not in the crusader part. In the beginning, I was kind of impossible to be around because I hated everybody that was a Gnostic and I fuck all of them. And I, I feel like I'm kind of through the crusader phase. I'm, I'm at a phase where I would like to help. I would like to help other people who are needing to leave something, whether it's an abusive relationship or an abusive system of thought. And so I'm hoping to become a volunteer for uh, Recovering from Religion, uh, which is an organization based out of the U.S. and I think Australia. So that's sort of the next phase, I'm hoping, and will gradually be less angry all of the time, <laughs> which I'm not anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I just now know where to direct it to. Like, it doesn't have to consume my day. Lynn told me that she wasn't particularly worried about any Gnostics listening to podcast episodes where she speaks about her experiences. And so far, nobody has tried to silence her at all. I I doubt seriously anyone who's super invested in Gnosis is going to want to listen to this kind of thing anyway. So I'm not worried about ramifications or or people coming after me about it. And even if they did, fine, you know, let's talk. Let's, Let's talk about what didn't work for me. You want to have that conversation? Let's have that conversation. You know, I'm, I'm much more articulate now. So, <laughs> For Lynn, like so many of my interviewees, 
her motivation in speaking about her experiences is to try to use her story to help others. It's something I greatly admire. Whether a Gnostic listens to this or some other person who has doubts and is in pain with their own process, then I just hope that the stories that people tell can uh, help people come to a decision, whether it's they stay or they leave. Like the doubt and the struggle is probably the worst part that I had to endure because I should have left years, years before I did. And I waited and I waited and I waited. I'm going to end this episode with a few thoughts from Lynn about where she's at right now belief-wise and what has helped her over these last couple of years, which, as she already mentioned, includes listening to podcasts about the subject. You can hear Lynn on another podcast called Trust Me, which is great. And a quick note that if you haven't yet listened to the Conspirituality podcast, you should definitely give that one a go too. Here are some things that were useful to Lynn. Listening to other people talk about critical thinking or atheism, and not that I'm an atheist, I don't know what the hell I am. I'm, I'm not going to put a pin in it. I don't care right now. Healing is my, healing is my focus right now, and learning to critically think and not worrying about a label. Um, but knowing bullshit when I see it and smell it, like knowing that, nope, that's, that's a little too woo-woo for me. I cannot go there. And I, I kind of am a little bit allergic to spirituality at the moment. Um, but those podcasts, uh, especially the spirituality and yours as well. Like I've listened to a lot of episodes. Um, so uh, yeah, just being able to hear other people articulate like another, another good example, Sam, you know what Samuel reminds me of after all of this conversation, uh, Jordan B. Peterson, <laughs> that is exactly, that is exactly Samuel is Jordan B. Peterson. And he is like, he's complex and he sounds like he's saying something smart, but he's kind of not saying something at all but he has all this like certainty and he has this like air about him and this following. And that is what Gnosis is. access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. I want to give my Patreon supporters a huge shout out. A number of you stood by me while I took the last year out to write Do As I Say, and I'm hugely grateful. I'm also happy to be back in the world of Let's Talk About Sects and bringing you season five over the months to come. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was researched and written by me, Sarah Steele, with research assistance from Hayley Gray. Music was by Joe Gould. Thanks to Matt Brazel for editing. A very special thanks to Lynn Short for sharing her story with me. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for season five of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.